little bit about um, how we tried to uh, celebrate uh, the Christmas season here. About six years ago as a church, we made a decision to kind of uh, encourage people to, to move in a little bit different direction with their Christmas spending and maybe set aside some of the money they would normally spend on Christmas to go towards some uh, ministries uh, that are kind of dear to our heart and, and, and in St. Joe and around our neighborhood. And so back in the uh, entryway there, there's the four different ministries we're supporting. There's little giving envelopes. You can put money in there if you'd like and put in our offering box. The past couple of weeks, we've gotten to hear from uh, Food for Kids and uh, the ministry they do to uh, feeding kids in our neighborhood in the summer. And then last week, um, Tammy Flowers from our congregation who started a ministry called Rescued Readers um, came and shared a little bit about their vision. Today we're going to get an opportunity to hear about the ministry of Young Life and particularly, uh, particularly the, um, the camping ministry um, that they have each summer and the impact that that makes on so many kids um, in our community, many of us. Um, that were saved at Young Life Camps and can attest to that, the importance and criticalness of, of that experience. And so uh, this morning, Amy Brooks is on staff with Young Life. She's going to come and share a little bit about that with us. So let's give it up for Amy. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Like Bob said, my name's Amy Brooks, and I'm the Associate Area Director here in St. Joe with Young Life, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity this morning to share with you a little bit about my story, but also just the opportunity that you have this Advent season to prayerfully consider a gift to our Young Life campership. So I am a Nebraska native and was an unchurched kid growing up, and so I felt like my life was pretty typical until I reached middle school, which I think a lot of us can attest that entering into that stage of life is pretty difficult as we're figuring out who we really are and experiencing a lot of changes in our lives. And so I really struggled with my identity and really figuring out who I was and what my purpose was. And there are three things that I really focused on. One was that I wanted to be known and I wanted people to want to know me. So this idea of popularity, this idea that I was someone who was a a desirable friend. The second thing was I desired intimacy. I wanted to have relationships with people who really cared about me. And the third thing was I wanted to know that I mattered. I wanted to know that if I was here today and gone tomorrow, people would miss me. And so I struggled with that, and early into my high school years even struggled with this idea of who I really was and what it really meant for me to be here um, in this world. And so thankfully I had an older brother, um, a lot of people don't say that, but I had an older brother who invited me um, to go to Young Life when I was a freshman in high school, and I had no idea what that was, and for fear of the unknown, I rejected that invitation for weeks. And then one, one night, he got me to go, whether it was the will of my parents or his will, I don't really know what happened there. But I showed up at this person's basement, because back then we did it in people's homes, and I was just overwhelmed with the atmosphere, that there were so many kids in this room that I knew, and how did they know about this thing? And what was going on? Why are we really here? But I felt like people wanted to know me, that these Young Life leaders wanted to be in a relationship with me, and care for me. In one night, that's how I felt. And I can't tell you what we learned that night or really what happened at that club besides the fact that I stood in front of a room full of my peers and shot cocoa puffs out of my nose. As a high school freshman, my first time at Young Life Club, we don't do that anymore. It's pretty mortifying and really hard for them to come back. But I kept going back. I was pursued by a Young Life leader who really cared for me and and showed me 
that they wanted to know me, that they wanted to be a part of my life. The summer before my junior year of high school, I went to a camp called Castaway up in Minnesota. From the moment I stepped foot on that property, God was working in my heart. He was transforming my life from what it was to a life with him. Every opportunity I had that week to experience his love was just shown to me through different avenues. The love of my young life leader, who I actually met the morning we got on the bus to go to camp, I had a new leader, transitioned there, to the moment I left camp feeling like things were going to be different. I sat in a club room with hundreds of other high school kids from all around the world and heard the message of Jesus Christ for the first time, and I got it. I understood what that meant for me, and it forever changed my life. I actually cried on the way going home because I was leaving such an incredible place, and I had transitioned from death into life. It was the best week of my life. The great thing that we have here at Wellspring is a community that loves our community. And we have a significant number of folks who have actually volunteered with the Ministry of Young Life and are currently volunteering. And so if you would at this moment, if you've ever volunteered as a Young Life leader or wildlife leader, if you would go ahead and stand up for me really quick, put you on the spot. Would you guys help me celebrate these people? Hold on. Stay up for a second. Stay up for a second. Going to get a little awkward here. (laughs) These people represent countless invitations for high school and middle school students to come and see. To come and see the work that God is doing. The life that he offers us and the gift that he provides through that life. Those invitations are often met with resounding yeses and excitement, but a lot of times rejection. (laughs) And with that rejection, we continue to pursue kids. We reach into their lives and go where they are and don't give up because we understand what is at stake. You guys can sit down. Thank you. We understand that there is a price that is to be paid through our sin. And we want to share that with high school and middle school students. When we get yeses, we are so excited. We continue to invite kids to come and see at our Young Life Clubs, at our weekly Bible studies called Campaigners, and especially camp. Camp changed my life, and it has changed, like Bob said, many of our lives in this room. When kids (laughs) tell us no about camp, we don't settle for that. We reach into that and pursue the no. Why won't you go? What's behind that no? How can we help? We spend hours praying for our friends. We spend countless awkward conversations with parents, with friends, with relatives, with siblings, sometimes coaches, even teachers, to help get our friends onto the bus to experience what can be the best week of their lives. We know that young life doesn't change lives, but that God uses young life to change lives. And we are so grateful for that privilege and opportunity that we have there. One of the biggest obstacles for our young life friends and wildlife friends going to camp is the cost. Unfortunately, because young life is such an extravagant place and offers so much for our friends to go and experience camp, it costs a lot of money. This year, our high school trip alone cost $745 for one kid to go. And so we would ask that you prayerfully consider a gift to helping our friends go to camp this summer.
I could stand up here for hours and try to tell you and explain to you how awesome Young Life Camp is. But until you really experience it for yourself, you, it's just hard. <laughs> and I couldn't really give you a great picture of that. My friend Bill Page, who is on staff in the Eastern Division for Young Life, um, has created a video that gives you a tour of one of our properties, um, actually in New York. And while we're not going to this camp, maybe ever, but hopefully one day, we, I just feel like it's a great representation, that it shows you everything at camp has a purpose. It's the best week of kids' lives because it can change their life forever. Not because they got to jump off a ropes course or meet a really cute guy or a really cute girl and have that friendship continue at home. But really because God is working. From the moment kids sign up and say yes, God is working to transform their heart. And the pursuit of a young life leader is just that. It's God's work. We don't change kids' lives. God uses us to change kids' lives. So if you would, tune in for a couple minutes and check out this video of Lake Champion Young Life Camp. That if you feel like you want to experience Young Life Camp or even your local ministries that are happening here, please talk to any one of us who stood up or Phil or myself, and we would love to invite you to come see club. Come to camp with us this summer as an adult guest and see what what the hype is all about because it's really fun and just a really cool picture of the gospel lived out at a Young Life Camp. So thank you guys so much. I can personally attest to the, the power of that experience. Um, when I, in my mind, go back to that moment where I crossed over from, from death to life, I'm sitting on the side of a pool uh, in December in Colorado um, at a Young Life camp looking up at the stars, thinking about the vastness of God and his creation and his power, but yet he still knows me and loves me and wants me and... Uh, that's where I go back to. That was the, the spot for me. So um, uh, it's a very worthwhile thing to invest in, obviously. So today we're going to talk a little bit about um, this Advent theme of peace. And when we see the scenes of the nativity, uh, either at church or out on display in people's yards or at city halls where they allow that, um, this, this, this picture of the birth of Christ, it's always uh, one of tranquility and, uh, and, and, and serenity and peace. We have a baby and barnyard animals and a star and the heavenly host. And it's all rainbows and unicorns, right? Peace on earth. And the Old Testament even prepped us for this a little bit. 700 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah wrote this um, in Isaiah 9-6 about the coming Christ child. He said, For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So just real quickly, first thing off the top of your head, when you um, think about the word, uh, the idea of peace, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? What are some words, rapid fire, when you think about peace? What's that? Contentment, okay. What else? What's that? Quiet, okay. Is that it? Stillness. 
stillness. Okay, good. All right? So all of those things that we mentioned are kind of the, the general idea of peace. And we crave those forms of peace, don't we? I mean, especially in a chaotic world that we live in where there's so much noise and so much busyness, obviously during, around the holiday seasons as well, sometimes we just long to take a breather, right? Light a candle, sing Silent Night or Kumbaya or whatever you want to sing. But this wasn't the kind of peace that Jesus was ushering in. In fact, the kind of peace that he was talking about was completely different than what we might expect. In reality, that silent night in Bethlehem, away in a manger, the birth of Christ, God in human flesh, was actually an act of war. An invasion against the prince of darkness, a direct attack against Satan and the forces of evil in this world a direct attack against our own hearts. See, Jesus was an immediate threat to everyone. King Herod was um, in charge of the area of Judea. Uh, He was under the Roman emperor, uh, but he had jurisdiction over uh, Jerusalem and Bethlehem where Jesus was born. He was appointed by the Caesar, and his unofficial title was King of the Jews. Okay? So Herod began to hear these rumors floating around about this miraculous birth of this child. And as he consulted some of the the Hebrew teachers there and, and heard about the prophecies of this ruler, this king that was going to be born in the city of Bethlehem, he all of a sudden got pretty nervous about this. And he made a desperate and drastic decision as a result. I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. It's page 876 in your pew Bibles. So at this point in the story where we're going to pick it up, the Magi from the east have come. They've followed Jesus' star and come to bring him gifts and to worship him. And they arrive and they they go to Herod and they say, um, where is this child that's been born king of the Jews? And you can imagine Herod's like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm the king of the Jews. And so you can can sense this this sense of of threatening. And and Herod tells them, well, hey, you know, when you go find him and uh, when you're done there, come back and tell me where he is so that I can worship him too. So he kind of sends these magi out to be spies for him. So they go and visit the Christ child, but then they're warned in a dream uh, to not go back to Herod, and so they returned home a different way. But let's look at the the story as it picks up in, in verse 16. It says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So historians, when they're looking at kind of the area around Bethlehem, was a really small hamlet, but 
they, they're, their best guess would, it would have been probably about 20 to 30 infants that were killed. And so for those parents and families, the arrival of Jesus in the world was anything but peace on earth for them. And in fact, throughout Jesus' life, the scene in Israel was anything but peaceful. Israel was a, a conquered nation. The Roman Empire had complete control over them. Uh, they made it completely clear that any resistance to their authority would be quickly stamped out. They, they did uh, public executions um, to make that very clear, to regularly remind these folks. So not only did, were their earthly enemies very real to them, but they also had a spiritual enemy, Satan, whose job it has been since the beginning of time to kill, steal, and destroy the lives of all of God's creation. And so that threat had eternal implications, just like it does for each one of us. And when Jesus enters into that narrative, he understands the implications of all of that. He understands what's going on with his people here on earth, their current circumstances. He understands the eternal circumstances of them and everyone that was to come. And he understood his mission and why he'd been sent. I want you to turn over to Matthew 10. By this point in the story, Jesus is an adult. In his early 30s, he began his earthly ministry. And this is what he declared in verse 34 of chapter 10. He said, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So this is curious, isn't it? We have the Prince of Peace who says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. So what the heck's going on? (laughs) What is he talking about? Well, I think we can find a clue in Luke chapter 2. I want you to turn over to there. A couple chapters over, uh, uh, books over, sorry. Uh, Page 932, they're pew Bibles. Matthew and Luke are the two gospel writers that give a more detailed account of Christ's birth. So in Luke's account, when the angels announced the birth of Christ, this is what they said. And this is uh, starting in verse 13 of chapter 2. It says, Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Did you catch that? To those on whom his favor rests, which implies not everyone. You see, we have to understand that, as Paul talked about in Romans chapter 5, which we're going to get to here in a minute, that we were all born enemies of God. Our spiritual condition upon birth because of the presence of sin in this world was one of separation. Over here was our sinful condition. And on the other side, as far as you can get away, is God's holiness. And then there's this gap between those two things that we in our own power could never bridge 
ourselves. Every single one of us needed a Savior. Enter Jesus. So when Jesus said, I have come not to bring peace but a sword, he understood that there was a a war to be waged in the cosmic and eternal battle between light and darkness, between himself and Satan for the hearts and minds of all of mankind, including you and I. Jesus had to conquer sin and death on the cross to make a way for us to be reconciled, to have peace with God so that we would no longer be enemies but could become sons and daughters. Paul put it like this in Romans 5.10. He said, For if while we were God's enemies we were reconciled, which means to restore to friendship to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Y'all, we were enemies because we wanted to sit on the throne of our life. And just like Herod, we did not want to relinquish control to Jesus. Is that true? I know it is for me. What does that look like for you in your life? Can we have an honest moment here of confession? What are some places in your life where you have been unwilling at different points or maybe even currently to relinquish control? Like you want to be on the throne maybe in that area of your life. Even though you've said I've surrendered myself to Jesus, it certainly doesn't look like it at times. Anybody willing to share some places where you're still on the throne? Yeah, Rich. My time, I like to control it. Okay, his time. He likes to control it. Good. Randy? What are the barriers in between me and God? Most of the time it comes down to a self-centered nature and a lack of faith. Okay, yeah. A self-centered nature and a lack of faith. Good. Other places? Yeah. When my instincts and my best are taken in the things, it's hard to you know, lay down my will or listen without being defensive. Okay. Yeah, so a desire to be right, maybe. Okay. We're warming up, people. What else? My resources. Do what? Your resources, okay? Yeah, that's a tough one for a lot of people, right? God asks us to be generous, to give, and boy, we cling to that. That's it's a hard one to let go of. What else? Goals for the future, okay? Things that you kind of have mapped out in your mind, right? And, and we, we control those things, yeah. What else? What's that? Your children, okay? Yeah. Yeah, Nick, I'm sorry. Let me get back here where I can hear you. Your career. Yeah, yeah. That was a big one for me too. Mm. I think, you know, for me, as I shared with you guys, just that safety and security, wanting to kind of map out my life in a way that I felt like was going to be okay and not too risky and you know 
um, laying down some things like having to move <laughs> to, to go do another job somewhere else and let go of my retirement plan and this house that we had bought that we loved and all those things that I really wanted to control and had a very hard time relinquishing. Some of it could be our dating life for you young people. You have this person that you desperately want to be with. And who knows? Have you really asked God? Have you surrendered that relationship and, and really said, God, it's yours? Um, I know that, that that's tough for a lot of people. And we could probably talk about many more things. But thankfully, Jesus bridged that gap that once made us enemies and gave us the opportunity to be a friend. So I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 5. It's page 1027. Last passage we're going to look at here. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So he says, since we have been justified, and that word means made right. We were made right through Jesus' payment for our sin on the cross and our acceptance of that free gift of salvation. And Paul is saying, then and only then can you have peace with God. Apart from that, there is no peace. You are not reconciled. You are not justified. And the only way to experience and enter into a state of peace with God, the way to have his favor rest on us, is that we have to surrender our life. We have to acknowledge him, acknowledge our sin, and identify ourselves with this Savior who poured out his blood on our behalf. Because as we say here in America, freedom isn't free, right? I got a big tattoo of it on my back. No, I'm just kidding. My street cred would go way up though, right? If I did, if I just pulled my shirt off right now, you guys would be like, dang, Bob. But guys, it's true. Freedom isn't free. You know, our freedom, our ability to have peace with God came at a tremendous cost to the Father. As we talked about with Abraham and Isaac a few, uh, a month ago or so, it cost him the life of his one and only son so that we might have peace with God and be reconciled with him. And so guys, when we celebrate Christmas... We celebrate it because it's an acceleration of the story of our redemption. The opportunity for peace got a giant kickstart in Bethlehem. Our Savior had come. And it was only a matter of time before he was going to be able to crush the enemy on the cross. Pay the price for you and I, rose from the grave, and made a way for us to have peace with him. That is the peace that Jesus is talking about. 
Not this idea that we have of this tranquil and comfortable life or this emotion that we're trying to find. Before you can have any of that, which you can really only have through the presence of the Holy Spirit in you, the peace that you have to find first is that peace between you and God. So peace is less about a feeling and more of a spiritual reality. And because of that peace, we have hope and joy. And that's what Christmas is really all about, folks. It's the ushering in of an act of war to rescue us from darkness. And I've been talking with some friends and kind of pondering these themes that we've looked at the last few weeks and our discussion has come back to, well, how do we, how do we experience those things now? You know, how do, we, how do we have joy and hope and peace in the present? And I think, you know, God really spoke to me as I've been reading through some different stuff on Advent and, and actually in another chapter that I read is that in order for us to experience those things in the present, we really have to go back to the cross, We have to go back to the cross and we have to remember. And that's why in the Old Testament, you see God telling his people again and again and again and again and again, remember, 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 I brought you out of Egypt. Remember, I parted the Red Sea. Remember, I provided for you in the desert. Remember, I gave you the land that I promised you. Remember. And I read a book this week, our staff is reading this book, and this pastor said that every morning in his time with God, he closes his eyes and he just, he goes back to the cross and he pictures himself there watching that scene unfold every day to help put himself in a perspective of what it is that he's doing with his life, who he owes his life to, what his hope and joy are in. And so as we go back and we reflect on those times each day, we pull the past into the present. And we say, I'm hopeful, I'm joyful, I'm at peace today because of what Christ did for me. But it doesn't stop there because we also have these future promises of Christ coming back. And when he comes back, he says, I'm going to make all things new. And there will be no more tears, no more death, no more sadness. And when God, Jesus, gave us the the Lord's Prayer, one of the parts of that prayer was, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so he's saying to us, I want you to pull those future promises back into the past, to the now, to the present. And I want you to live in a way in which people get a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Now, the fullness of these things experienced in just a little sliver even in our lives. Can we live in such a way that the people around us get a, get a, a wet their appetite for the kind of hope, joy, and peace that we can have in the presence of God someday? That's what we're striving to do as we enter into this season of Christmas every year, to pull it from the past and bring it back from the future into the present and experience it in its fullness in the now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you understood the implications of our state. God, the world thinks that we can just start an organization, start a non-for-profit, buy a bottle of Coke and sing a song and we'll all be great friends and we'll have peace on earth. 
They don't understand that it's a war. It's not just a war we can see with our eyes. It's not ISIS or whatever enemy we want to put a face on it. God, the enemy is the selfish nature in us. God, the fact that we want what we want when we want it. <laughs> and you understood that, that there had to be a peace offering laid down in order to bridge that gap between our sin and God's holiness. And so thank you for coming to this earth to do that for us, for becoming a baby, to grow up to be a man who would lay his life down so that we might be justified and reconciled to you. We might have the opportunity to be peace, to have peace, as that song said earlier, to be adopted in, to be made a son and daughter, no longer an enemy, but a dear friend, a child. God, when people are around us this Christmas season, help them to get a taste of the kind of hope and joy and peace and love that we can have in Christ because of the life that we live that those things just radiate and emanate out of us and it draws people in, it compels them to want to know more. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Would you stand with us and sing?